It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. This one featuring Neil Kinnock, now Lord Kinnock, and I interviewed him just a few weeks after the Labour election defeat this year. It's obviously a, a fascinating time to interview him because he was a Labour leader that the opinion poll said was in all likelihood going to be Prime Minister the following day in a general election and we've found ourselves in a similar position, although you know, a very different situation uh, this time round. So it was interesting to get his perspective on why Labour lost then and why Labour lost now um, and, and what happens to the Labour Party, what happens to the country in the next few years. He was, he's, got, he's blessed with a, a grasp of language that very few people have, Neil Kinnock, and he has, he's, his face still lights up and he, he's a remarkable man and he's, um, he, he talks in almost sort of biblical tones and there's just something immediately warm about him. That said, and there are things that uh, we disagree on and his analysis of why Labour lost, I, I think is... I don't think it's the full story, and I I tend to disagree with it. Um, But I won't ruin what he's about to say, so enjoy the show. Um, Thanks, as always, for downloading it. Um, And I've listened back to some of these, and nearly all of them start with me apologising for them being late. So I want to stop doing that. If only because, and this is going to sound weird, I just thought, (laughs) if they're ever sort of... I don't know, you, you put them out there, they're out there forever, aren't they? And I would never want... If the last impression I ever make on Earth is of a man that was constantly late so um, I think I'm going to stop apologising even though, just take it as read that if they're late, I am sorry but I'm not going to apologise anymore (laughs) so, enjoy this, it's Neil Kinnock and he's amazing, thank you Good evening Hello, welcome everyone, welcome to the political party Uh, can we cheer if you've been here before? Excellent, welcome back Uh, previous uh, come us. And uh, <laughs> give me a cheer if this is your first time here. Hey! Oh, excellent. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So the first one back after the election. So if you don't mind, it's probably the last time I can ask this. Uh, give me a cheer if you voted. Hey! Give me a cheer if you didn't. Hey! <laughs> You're here every month and you didn't vote. I couldn't be asked. Couldn't be asked. <laughs> this must be further from your house than a polling station. And which seat is that? West Ham. And you can... Uh, right, OK. Just, well, just finish the poll, and then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this. Um, can we see if you voted Conservative? Yeah. Can we see if you voted Labour? Yeah. Lib Dem? Yeah. <laughs> one, really, one really pissed guy. Uh, UKIP? Wee. Legend, yes. Oh, welcome back, fellas. How's it going? Welcome back, welcome back. Uh, Green? And I don't want to conform to stereotypes, but that was probably one of the most vegetarian cheers I've ever heard. See <laughs> if you vote green. <sighs> um, so the problem is, even, I was going to talk about the shy Tory phenomenon, uh, and then straight off the bat, the Tories were there was a reluctant cheer just for the Tories who voted. Just put your backs in again. Who voted Tory? <laughs> That's better, isn't it? No more shy Tories at this gig. Um, and did. 
Well, uh, we, did anyone else not vote? <laughs> sort of slightly raising your hand, even not wanting to vote in this ballot. Uh, sorry, what's your name, mate? William. William, and you come a lot, don't you, William? Yeah. So you're someone who enjoys politics, yeah. who finds it entertaining on some... Yeah, you stayed up all night for the result. Was there at any point when you were watching it and you went, fuck, I knew there was something I was meant to do today. That was it, that was it! <laughs> well, it depends who you want to vote for. Well, share of the vote could have played a part in um, potentially coalition negotiations, who would have known? Um, so who represents the city? I'm guessing it's Labour, is it? Who is it? Lynn Brown. Lynn Brown, she a good local MP? <laughs> right, so this, the plot thickens. I mean, I write to my MP all the time. Troll her on Twitter. Right, so you write to you like, oh my God, William, what is going on? Do you think, have you voted in the past? Uh, no, because I was in the safest Tory seat when I was younger. You need to move to a marginal seat. <laughs> Get up to, oh, well, that's a good point. Well, just go there for election day. Yeah. Really take in the atmosphere. Find out what you're missing. And the, and the, the lady behind, um, what's your name? You're Australian. Wasn't able to. Oh, that's, that's not quite as exciting, is it? <laughs> Should have lied about your ethnicity, William. Put on a funny accent. We could have had a right old, uh, right old laugh. Uh, so today was Queen's Speech Day, of course. Did anyone watch it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I watched it. I watched that. I watched the debate afterwards. It's funny watching the SNP in there, isn't it? Because they really don't want to join in with it. But they're MPs now. So every time someone goes, eh, like David Cameron will crack a joke, they'll go, <laughs> and then the moment the camera's on, they'll go, no, 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 that's not funny. That is in Westminster, Tory joke, and in Scotland, we laugh only at Alba jokes. <laughs> they're all wearing white roses, did you see this today? They don't look like they've gone to sort of the wrong venue for a wedding. <laughs> well, they're in white roses turned up. Apparently, they always do this, but there's only ever been six of them before, and now there's 56 of them more noticeable. Angus Robertson was speaking. It looked like the worst best man speech in the history of... <laughs> all just sat there behind him looking up. David Cameron was in Scotland, I think, earlier this week. Um, what I love about Cameron when he's in Scotland, he always has the manner of a guy who's trying to talk himself out of a pub fight. <laughs> Being very reasonable, but ultimately on the back foot. You know, I've come to Scotland today to announce new powers for the Scottish Parliament. I believe in these powers. It's the Smith Commission. The Scottish people voted for it. But I also want to come here in solidarity. Um, and I think we, we can work together. Look, I know you don't like the sound of it, but all I'm saying is we can all be reasonable about this. We can all be reasonable about it. Like, I'll buy you whatever it was I spilled, and we can, all, we can all get on with the rest of the day. It was funny watching him having to meet Sturgeon, wasn't it? Because the, the, most of the aggression, really, throughout the general election campaign was between the Tories and the SNP, and Labour sort of got boxed out. Because the SNP was saying, we will lock the Tories out of number 10. And Cameron's going, and a deal between the SNP and the Labour Party. It really became those two going at each other. And then as the leader of the UK and as the leader of Scotland, they had, then had to meet and talk about devolution, that picture of them both when they meet on the steps. I don't know if you saw it, but in one of them, Sturgeon is properly leaning into him. <laughs> you know, like, people used to just shake hands like that, didn't they, William, like that? Like a normal handshake. But if you notice now, people shake hands like that. <laughs> they pull you in like that. You almost know that they shook hands and she went, you try anything funny, I'll fucking bleed you. <laughs> me for the cameras, isn't he? But it, was, it must have been weird them both having to turn up. I mean, being really personal and rude about each other, then have to turn up and be so cordial with each other. It must have been like, me, like meeting a Twitter troll. Just <laughs> sometimes to go, oh, well, we're getting on well now. I know we snagged each other off online, but we're, we're, we've put it all behind us. We're getting on very well. The thing is, I watch it, and because Sturgeon's quite photogenic, obviously, and Cameron's not bad looking, and you think, you know, they obviously hate each other, but he's like a rich, posh, dashing Tory gent. She's a working-class... 
apparently left-wing, apart from one <laughs> two key things, uh, apparently left-wing uh, woman, and you just think, you know what, if they were at uni, they'd have definitely had it off. <laughs> definitely, without a doubt. You know that firebrand in the year below, huh? Actually, rather taken with her. <laughs> oh no, I hate him, I hate him. No, he's arrogant, he's rich, he's entitled, he's got a lovely fit ass. Oh, what am I seeing? Ooh. <laughs> and Miliband, of course, has. Uh, well, well, I mean, uh, so much. I know, I know, it feels bad. It always felt slightly wrong, didn't it? But we all went along with it. Uh, just got back from Ibiza. Apparently, <laughs> just that he took his family. Oh, he should have taken the lads, really, shouldn't he? After that election, he was doing lads' holiday, wasn't he? Could have taken Ed Balls out there and Douglas Alexander and Jim Murphy. <laughs> like the in-betweeners. <laughs> the in-the-doldrums, the four of them just knocking around Ibiza. Douglas Alexander constantly getting asked for ID. <laughs> Miliband bringing out the bants. Oh, uh, hi, girls. Yeah, oh. Uh. <laughs> You know, if you uh, play your cards right, I'll let you play with my balls on the beach. <laughs> hey, go on, Ed, get the frisbee. <laughs> Jim Murphy just be out there getting in fights all week, wouldn't he? Stood on his iron brew crate. The SNP might want to ban the nuclear bomb, but there's one bomb they never ban the Jaeger bomb. Hey, hey! <laughs> get him out there on the lash, old Murphy. Now Ed's back. I mean, it must be difficult for Ed. Like, he obviously, he's been into Parliament to get sworn in, but you, like, when anyone's finished a project or a job of work or anything like that, finish your A-levels, you, sort of, you, you do a bit of time off, aren't you? So just sort of imagine him at home thinking, oh, God. You know what? I've got to order a pizza. Yeah, <laughs> it's a normal day. Uh, hi, Domino's. I'd like to order a pizza, please. What sort? Look, that's a really good question. <laughs> And you know what? I want to say this about it, and I think it goes to the heart of this conversation. Because <laughs> you know what? David Cameron can't tell you what sort of pizza we'd have. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Must be weird from like walking around the house, though, because it's not like a breaker, but when it, you constantly get reminded of defeat, don't you? I suppose when you're in that sort of line of work, just looking at his fridge. We're just sitting down in his kitchen, in his real one. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Sat in his little kitchen. Oh, everything just reminds me of that day. Post-it notes on the fridge. Win election. Oh, come on, Justine, please. <laughs> oh, God knows what we'll do. I just... I mean, no-one still knows what happened to the Edstone. Uh, that the, um, <laughs> the markings are made on that weird hieroglyphics that the Labour Party was doing. I just hope that it never gets demolished and is just left somewhere to rot and then in, like, a million years, a new civilization finds it. And it's the only record left of humanity. <laughs> So like new Indiana Jones like, oh my god, what is this? This is a it's the last it's the last remaining words of an ancient civilization. I, I think it's about a million years old. What does it say? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> and it's almost as if they, they were deliberately trying to wind each other up. I mean it, an NHS with the time to care. Even a million years later, this means nothing to me. <laughs> Labour in the middle of a leadership campaign now. Uh, John Prescott, this whole thing about Labour now, talking about aspiration. Apparently, Labour didn't talk about aspiration before uh, the election. John Prescott was on Radio 4 this week. He said, oh, people talking about aspiration. I don't even know what that word means. Um, which, uh, to be fair, they just got him on the day when he was asking about that word. 
very, very lucky. Uh, but it's, it's hotting up now. Burnham apparently is the favourite, Andy Burnham. Uh, so people, oh, well, let's do a straw poll here. It doesn't matter who you vote for, um, let's cheer for each uh, leader. Who do you think Andy Burnham would be? Well, hang on, that was the wrong question. <laughs> Give me a cheer if you think Andy Burnham would be the best leader of the Labour Party. Ooh. Yvette Cooper. Ray. Liz Kendall. Ray. Oh, interesting. Mary Craig. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Mary Craig, star of last night's Newsnight. Uh, Mary Craig is standing, she's actually a, a great politician, but she's standing, not a lot of people know who she is. Um, she described herself not as new Labour or as old Labour. She said, I like to describe myself, Evan, as bootstrap Labour. I know. Sounds a little bit. <laughs> well, there were some funny words coming out over there. Sounds a bit what? What was your guess? You what? A little bit what? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Kinky. It does, doesn't it? Is that something that would swing your vote towards Mary? <laughs> Finally. Finally, a BDSM candidate. Never mind, never mind LGBT. What about the BDSM community? Andy Burnham is the front runner. Um, so I thought I'd go online and see what people were saying about him and where better place to go than the Daily Mail website. Uh, some, of these, some of these are all genuine. Uh, someone's put, Mr. Mascara. It's nothing but a union puppet. And someone's obviously... Like, the problem is, when you write something like this, people immediately jump on it. The guy underneath has gone, does he wear eyeliner? <laughs> <laughs> I love it when people... Len McCluskey, obviously, is the General Secretary of United. Someone's put on here, Len McCluskey, another Scot dictating terms. <laughs> he's from Liverpool. <laughs> but because he's got muck in his name, I'm sick of all this Scottish culture coming around here. That burger joint, McDonald's, they're everywhere. They're taking over. <laughs> <laughs> I love this one. And this is obviously aimed at Mary Black, uh, the young uh, SNP MP. Mary. You what? Mary Black. It's Marie Black, isn't it? It's Mary Black. Yeah, Farry. Farry? Yeah, with a V. No, it's spelt with an M. Yeah, but it's said with a V. Is it true? Because my mate's got... No, sorry, my brother's got a mate with the same name. Oh, Your brother's got a mate with the same name. You asked him... He checked it online, and it's definitely true. <laughs> right, I'm not having a fucking slanging match on how to pronounce Marie Black. The big, bigger, bigger issues in this Labour leadership campaign. But very black. Can anyone second or verify this? Yes, is that true? It's true, yeah. <laughs> That's all I need. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Got any sources? No, it's just true. Okay, fine. Someone's thought, we need MPs who can, who can re relate to reality. Which is, I mean, of all the things to relate to, obviously, surely the best. <laughs> Rather than a 20-year-old kid who likes nothing more than to fill her gob with chips and cola cubes. <laughs> One thing that made me like her, to be fair. <laughs> Matthew from Birmingham's just written in capital letters, LOLBA. This is all LOL. <laughs> I love this. This is two people... Well, someone's obviously just got on there and lost their mind, and then someone else, it's just great. John's put, this is just non-stop bile from a right-wing paper that would love to see a return to Victorian times. And Deep Blue's just put, uh, what's wrong with Victorian times? Fucking <laughs> <laughs> amazing. My, my favourite one is this. Andy Burnham is nothing more than a set of eyelashes. He couldn't run a bath, and if you think differently, he must be thicker than that gonk Miliband. I'd rather set my pubes alight than vote for him. <laughs> That's from an L. Kendall in Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> I 
word. Because <laughs> the Lib Dems as well, the Lib Dems have got their leadership election going on, which is just like, there's eight of them. <laughs> it's just, exactly, toss a coin, yeah, toss a coin. Um, Joe Swinson, uh, who is, uh, well, an ex-Lib Dem MP, um, has waded in, uh, and Lisa, she's supporting Tim Farron. Um, she's put, the Lib Dems have always felt like a family. Well, now you're the size of one, so uh, <laughs> enjoy it. She's put, we can achieve, this is it, with Tim we can achieve a gender-balanced parliamentary party with real diversity by 2020. Yeah, the great liberal goal of four women MPs <laughs> in five years. And this is my favourite one. I believe Tim, Har- Tim Farron is the best choice to lead the hashtag Live Dem Fight Back. She's written this in a letter. She put a hashtag in normal conversation. Probably why his campaign is hashtag fucked. <laughs> we have a very special guest in the second half. So uh, let's have a break of 20 minutes. Reach on your glasses, let's have a drink. Um, and as always, um, towards the end of the second half, I'll open up the floor to questions. If there's ever, we've got such an amazing guest tonight, so please, as many of you as possible, do try and ask a question. I'll try and get around as many as possible. But I'm always wary of people coming to these things and coming away thinking, I wish I'd have asked. And tonight we have a, such a supreme guest, I, I really hope most of us take the opportunity. Um, so, as always, you've been amazing in the first half. Enjoy the rest of the show. I'll see you in 20 minutes. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs> Amazing noise. Always nice to have you kip in. <laughs> welcome. Right, welcome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, and I know I say this every month, but tonight we've got a truly amazing guest, and I think every month it's true. Um, and we've had people from across the political spectrum, and every month, in many ways, is a first. Um, we've had party leaders down here before, but this is the first time we've had someone who's led a major party and led them to the point where we almost became Prime Minister, and at a time when Labour... We're almost in that situation again. I think tonight is just a fascinating time to be talking to, undoubtedly, one of the most popular men in politics, respected across the ideological divide, and is an absolute true political heavyweight. Please give a huge welcome to Neil Kinnock. And when heavyweight in the metaphorical sense? Ah, oh, metaphorical, that makes a difference. <laughs> so, you are metaphorically a titter then. <laughs> absolutely. You've been reading my reviews? I, not at all. No, they're very good. They are abso- I, I wish I could have such reviews. I mean, <laughs> really. Can I, before we go any further, I better, uh, if I slur in what I'm saying tonight, it is not what I'm drinking. <laughs> I've got, they've told me, neuralgia. In my case, I think it's old neuralgia, but, <laughs> but nevertheless, it, it, it sort of, you know, it's a bit like having Michael Gove on his shoulder, and, it's, I, and it ties things up a bit here. So you will excuse me, I hope, in this very uh, And it's, it's particularly point. bad when you're pissed. <laughs> I, do you know, I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't know where to start, but I, I think we should start topically. People are still picking over what happened to Labour just a few weeks ago. Mm. As someone who's been there on the... But you were there, See, this is why I don't think the comparison is fair, and I, I didn't want to link it in that way. You took Labour to the brink of victory through popularity. 
through actually giving people a Labour Party that people really believed in. And, and you were involved in a titanic struggle, first with Margaret Thatcher and then with John Major, in an, in an election that still has seen the highest popular vote uh, in the history of the country, whereas this election was one that was almost an unpopularity contest. Um, do you think, in, in the post-92 landscape, that this was Labour's next 92, or is it different? No, I don't. Um and to, to ensure my feet stay on the ground after that terrific build-up earlier on, I was defeated by John Major. <laughs> um, and much to his surprise, actually. And, and, he, and he said, I, indeed, he was a lot more surprised than I was, because uh, I, I pretty much knew we weren't going to make it. But he said to me, he was very kind. He's, he's, he's a very decent guy. And he... He asked me to go to Downing Street for lunch a couple of weeks after the election, and uh, just the two of us. And he said, um, and he won't mind me disclosing this private conversation in this respect, at least. He said, um, uh, how, how, how are you a party after it? And I said, oh, they were, they were great. Uh, I mean, the fact that I resigned on the Monday afterwards might have, might have been, or told them I was resigning uh, and then stayed to look after the ship um, might have had something to do with it and he said mine would have torn my arms off <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry what was the question <laughs> it was just about oh, yeah. no, it is, was out is no like then no it isn't uh, because of lots of reasons uh, you know, arithmetically, uh, we'd been making advances and we made further advances. At the time, it was the biggest gain made by the opposition uh, in history. We gained 42 seats and Harold Wilson, God bless him, won 41. So we squeaked that and we only lost in the end by the combined total of the bottom Tory uh, majorities came to 1,450 votes out of that record turnout. I mean, it was a hell of a big turnout. Um, so we came close and the So if 800 felt people would have voted differently, Labour would have won in 92? Yeah, in those 11 seats. Wow. If, uh, I mean, the majority in the Vale of Morgan was 19, for instance. So if we got another small busload in... People like William then. <laughs> So, well, I, that, that I don't comprehend. You know, I don't comprehend not voting like I don't comprehend wife-beating. I really, really don't comprehend that. People are looking at William in a very different way now. And, and not to be too sonorous, uh, just two things. The, the agonies, the desperate oppression that people went through and threw off in order to get you the right you suck William. your bloody thumb on election day. Um, we don't know what he was sucking on election don't, day. Don't, don't ever go to the cenotaph to respect the dead, because you disrespected the dead on election day by not voting. Anyway, secondly, uh, and I very, very personally... William's a nice guy, though, Neil. I, I'm sure he's a, he's a lovely guy. He's a lovely guy. That's why the lovely guys get rolled over by the nasty guys. It's because they don't stand up and do the business. 
the lovely guys have got to do it even more than the nasty guys in order to have a decent society. But there you go. But then equally, just on that, because obviously his point was that he lives in a safe seat, so he can sort of understand yeah. why. Don't we? If, if we had a proportional system, maybe. Oh sure. Well, no, you're talking. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm strong advocate, and I've been for many years of a proportional representation system, and I think we should introduce it here with great respect, as long as it is constituency-based, very, 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 very important, Yes, because that is the absolute essential British democratic link, the accountability and representativeness of a member of parliament for a constituency, a neighborhood, a community, that's absolutely crucial, and they don't have that in all PR systems, they do in some, but not in all. And secondly, it's got to be a sensible system, not a daft one like Israel or Italy, where, you know, a man and a dog, as long as he stands up for man on dogs, I can get elected. Hey, David Blunkett was a good Home Secretary. Terrific. <laughs> in that case, though, in that case, as David would testify himself, it was much more the dog leading the man. <laughs> and, and, uh, I, David has, with his generosity of spirit, paid tribute to generations of dogs. And I say this to him, he never got one of them run over. It was very good. <laughs> is, do you look back on your time? That was a damn good first question you asked. Oh, right. It was a really good first question. And we, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get there in the end. Um, but it was, in terms of it not being our 90 turn, in terms of the, the fallout from it, uh, of it being more an unpopularity contest and that, and that being maybe the difference between the two, I, I get a sense from you of a, a sort of sense of sadness about the way the Labour Party's gone. Maybe not maybe in terms of its political direction, but just maybe in the way that it's behaved. Is that fair? Uh, Labour Party's got scared. And this is why we've got to crack out of it uh, with a new leadership, whoever it turns out to be because uh, I believe that the party and lots of people in the party, certainly in Parliament, got um, alarmed, um, repelled by two things. One of them has got to do with me. Um, I got battered individually. Fine, it goes with the terrain, there's no good whinging about that. Um, and one of the reasons that I got battered is that I used to make sometimes very telling um, speeches, but sometimes they were judged as being rather florid by my elders and betters in the Daily Mail, and uh, uh, were great arbiters of taste in our countries. <laughs> and now they've got the government that they wanted, so it's to really see how long that lasts. But um, that meant that there are people in Parliament now, and certainly before the election, who could make lucid and inspiring speeches and statements and undertake acts of courage, but they were deterred by the fact that this would be dismissed as a version of, for want of a better phrase, Welsh windbaggery or whatever else. Or the boy or from the valleys, two-fisted and all that bloody nonsense. Um, and that was the one thing. But the much more daunting thing was what got hung around their necks was this reputation as the Labour, the party of prodigal waste, who brought us the crisis 
and overspent and overborrowed and did all those things, which as several Nobel economics laureates and just about every incisive and effective economic commentator in our country will testify was complete bloody rubbish. But they got so transfixed by this legend that they didn't fight back against it and dismantle it, not with uh, florid language, but with fact, plain, crystal clear fact. And that daunted spirit prevailed and now it's got to end. Wasn't now there's got to be audacity and challenge. But didn't that spirit manifest itself because, in some people's view, Ed Miliband was so desperate to distance himself from the player years that he accepted the Tory narrative on the economy so that he could have a sort of painless, quick way to put almost clear red water between him and Blair? No, I'm pretty certain Ed didn't. Uh, in repeated conversations with him and many of the things he said, and whatever his detractors say, they can't dismiss the fact that he showed the enormous guts, and I mean enormous guts, to take on Murdoch, the mail, the energy companies, the banks, uh, predatory capitalism, and people can quarrel with the choice of words and all the rest of it, but this man was sticking up for the squeeze middle and the little men and women who were going to get trampled on otherwise. And it took a lot of courage and imagination and brains to do that. Now, that's a pretty good combination for a leader of guts and brightness and insight. Uh, and so, consequently, I would acquit Ed of any of those attributed faults. The big mistake he made, uh, and I strongly supported him, was to stand not so much against his brother, but against the man who the press had decided was going to be the winner. And when Ed went, won, they never forgave him. So they cut him and uh, desecrated him as often as they could in every conceivable way. He was weird, he was a geek, he was this, he was that, he was the other thing. From day one. From day one. And uh, that made, that turned uh, Snowden into Everest. But is there not a danger that it's, it's even more fundamental than that? Is that people thought Labour chose the wrong brother? People who, even people, if they don't no, read the media... No, wait a minute, hold on a sec. People thought... People were told repeatedly, right from day one, that that was the case. And it became a conventional idea amongst, you know, sensible, intelligent people that somehow there was something odd about this guy. And I can tell you, uh, whatever else is wrong with Ed, there's nothing odd about him at all. Well, <laughs> maybe it wasn't his oddness then. I mean, I, you know, to some extent he was odd. I, in fact, I think he should have embraced those sort of peculiar parts of his personality because I think people are tired of politicians that all look and feel the well, same. Well, one is baseball cap on the back of his head or something. Oh, <laughs> oh, sorry, I, Haig did that. Haig did that. It didn't work, yeah. But he should, have, he, should have sort of, he should have embraced bits and pieces of that. But wasn't it more fundamental about the political direction, about just the impressions people had of these two men, was that it wasn't really about the media, just the public... Firstly, I don't think the media are that influential. And secondly, I think people are more sophisticated mm. than to... Even those people who do buy the Daily Mail are still capable of critical thought. Well, uh, I don't think that the media are as influential as they think they are. And secondly, because of the decline in newspaper sales and readership, 
they are less influential on that critical 5 to 6% that make the difference between victory and defeat. I think it might be down to 3 or 4% now. Uh, and they are internally very worried about that because of the transfer to reliance on social media and all the rest of it, which is a very interesting development, not yet fully understood by everybody, including me. <laughs> but um, So the margin is smaller, but it's nevertheless significant, not in the way in which on election day or the week before the newspapers proclaim their preference for this or that candidate or that party, but in the way in which continually, day in, day out, drip, 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 in Welsh is a saying, brick, dripping breaks the stone. And they understand that. And the day in, day out, from cartoons, the diaries, the personal columns, all the rest of it, a perpetual critique, a perpetual uh, caricature of a political figure. It doesn't have to be Ed Miliband, doesn't have to be Leda, doesn't have to be Labour. It, anybody that they decide they're going to target, they can do that stuff with. They can make Arnold Schwarzenegger look like the Seven Stone Weakling if they set their minds to it. So that uh, creates two things. One, a general broad public attitude. Uh, you know, I'm not blaming them. That's their business. That's what they do. And as Enoch Powell said, and I don't often quote him, <laughs> I, but uh, for politicians to blame the press is like a sailor blaming the sea. It's there. It's part of it. Yeah. And he was absolutely right about that. But the second thing that it does is to influence the broadcasters who strive with terrific effort, and I give them credit for that, to be dispassionate, neutral, balanced, and all the rest of it. But because the main source of their instant uh, current affairs, information, news, vocabulary, is a biased press, generally biased press, not every part of the press is biased, I know that, but uh, the general bias of the press, they pick that up and it becomes part of their transmission when they're asking questions, using phrases, uh, it's their, part of their frame of reference. So, I'm, I, I mean, look, I'm past whinging about that, but I actually think there's a problem for democracy when that much power of suggestion and influence of trans transmission is in so few hands. That could be mm, not a terrible peril, but a way of distorting outcomes. And that's a major problem. Ed is simply the latest example of it. They're in the process now of picking a new target. <clears throat> but when you saw the way that he behaved as leader, you know, I watched him extensively, usually online, that sounds weird. Usually, <laughs> usually, you know, the Parliament channel on the iPlayer, stuff yeah, yeah. like that. I would watch him just away from an other comment and just think, if I was watching this and not, didn't have all this other white noise going on, what would I think? And I just never found him that impressive. And as someone who's a, a Blairite, who was, you know, raised in an era when you were Labour leader and then Tony Blair was Labour leader, it just felt like we have sort of gone from Wembley to a sort of five-a-side pitch. Mm. It just sort of felt like, oh, we used to have these great, huge, great figures that took us to the brink of power, then took us into power, kept us there, 
And then now it almost feels like the tide's gone out. And whereas the Tories have people like Ken Clark and Michael Heseltine, and these huge figures, the Labour Party big figures of the new Labour era. Well, it's a funny stuff. thing, you know, when I was... How old are you? 32. Yeah. <laughs> well... Well, <laughs> well I, I, I... How I old do you think I look? How old no, do you I, say now? I, listen, I'm not being ageist. <laughs> I, the, the, um, when I was around about that age, I used to think of Bevan, Bevin, Attlee, Morrison, um, uh, and uh, Macmillan, and Churchill, and, you know, other figures of the 1950s and early 1960s who seemed to be gigantic. I looked through Attlee's cabinet, and they were in the pantheon. Now, I'm sure they had the same... Uh, personal inadequacies, diffidences, uh, inhibitions, fears, uh, as modern politicians, the difference is that in the age of which you speak and earlier, the requirement was for politicians to be able to establish their ideas, be not afraid to enunciate their convictions. This is Tories and Labour and Liberals too and all kinds of people. And then to try and convince a live audience. And the plasticization of politics. Uh, the way in which the emphasis on sound bites. Now sound bites are not new. Churchill was full of them. He was Shakespeare's full of them. Brilliant sound bitery. Baden Powell was full of them, for <laughs> God's sake. Uh, it's simply now that that's all you get. And it really means, and I'm not winching about that dumbing down of politics and all that bloody rubbish, but uh, when people's perception of politics and politicians is through that narrow prism, then it's easy to make a generation of politicians look a hell of a sight smaller than they really are or have got the potential to be. Isn't there also a second truth to that, that it's become, it's become with greater scrutiny? And as you say, when you, when, you, when you list the things about great figures that we didn't know, you know, their, their weaknesses, their foibles, their good sleazy behaviour, perhaps. Very good point. Therefore, trust in politicians. Worse than sleazy. Well, indeed. I mean, some of them are bloody bent. Let's face it. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Oh, and well. they were boozers and, uh, you know, they were falling about. Uh, so... You uh, keep existing even then. <laughs> Wow. I mean, if, yeah, that's right. I tell you what, the, the record of UKIP with all the councillors doing this, that, and the other thing and getting struck off and checked out and all the rest of it, I tell you what, it was like the Tory cabinet in the 1950s. But it's, <laughs> except they never got caught. Or if they did, they were drenched enough to depart. <laughs> I, but it, uh, and it happened in, in country house weekends, anyway, which makes it very respectful. <laughs> uh, we've all seen Downton Abbey, yeah. <laughs> well, it used to be called Upton Abbey. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, I, I, the thing is, you, you describe it as scrutiny. Yes, in a sense, it is. It's got a hell of a lot more to do with exposure than scrutiny. It's got a, I mean, politics has become, and it's never going to change now. It's not going to go back. And in many ways, thank God for that. But um, it... It's a, it's a goldfish bowl made of magnifying glass, you know? And everybody's going around going, like this. And I mean, all the little goldfish look like bloody great whales when the lights come on. 
And you think, whoa, wait a minute. I, what we hope is, since that's not going to change, and a politician's not going to change a hell of a lot, except possibly to get even more conformist than they are now, um, ah, let's hope the audience changes, as Bertolt Brecht would have said. Um, uh, he, <laughs> the, the Nazis arrested him after cracking jokes in Berlin about the Nazis in one of his cabaret shows. And they arrested him, Gestapo took him in, beat him around, let him go after a fortnight. And he, 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 got, he got back on the stage and he said, um, <laughs> I'm sorry I was interrupted. <laughs> and, he's, and, and then he said, uh, I, what occurred to me is that I, I shouldn't change the act, I should change the audience. <laughs> and um, I hope the audience changes. I hope the audience becomes more discerning, better informed, has a longer, stronger insight to history, recent history, but going back a bit, because then I think people will become more demanding of democracy, but more understanding of democracy too, but don't you think and that's make happening? better choices. But I mean, politics is, if you want it, politics is everywhere now. You've got Sky News, BBC Parliament, the internet. Uh, social media, as you say, yeah. like people are engaging in politics in new and exciting ways. I think there is evidence that there's a counterculture in politics. Maybe not necessarily in political thought, but certainly in political behaviour. If you look at people like Farage and Boris, who yeah. sort of cut through because people don't want everyone to sound like David Cameron, David Miliband, and Nick Clegg. So there, there are sort of signs that, and certainly with more female leaders, whatever you think of Nicola Sturgeon, Leanne Wood, and Natalie Bennett, there is clearly, a, and politics is always behind the people, but there is clearly a, a an expression yeah. coming through the system now, isn't there, that actually yeah, do sure. things that feel... I, and I don't mean to demean uh, Miss Sturgeon or Natalie Bennett or anybody like that, but uh, to oh, an extent, to an extent. <laughs> no, I don't do that. I, and it's damn good that the women are making a breakthrough. Whatever else can be said, that was evident. You saw that line-up and you thought, oh, for once, this isn't a guy with four women who are backing him in singing. You know, it, they're not going doa, doa, doa. They're making arguments. They're wrong, but they're making arguments. And, 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 and that was good. But um, in a sense, and I looked at those debates and I thought, bloody hell, this is X Factor politics. It's inevitable. The argument I made for televising Parliament, which Maggie disagreed with radically, she was against it, against it, against it. And I said, hey, listen, we've got the democracy, we've got the technology, it's ridiculous not to put them together. <laughs> and the same thing applies to the conduct of elections. You've got the technology, you've got the democracy, bang, they've got to go together. Okay, but we shouldn't, if we are discerning, if we are demanding democracy with active citizens, which is what we all want, I guess, is uh, allow the show to replace the perception. Mm. And I mean, people, when Lionel Jospin was running for the presidency of uh, the French Republic uh, in 2003, um, and uh, I speak to a lot of French friends, strong inclination towards socialists, people in the cinema, people in the arts, people in business, politics, whatever, and they all said uh, that uh, uh, Jospin was a great man, he'd been a terrific Prime Minister, a real servant of France, a soldier, a politician, an organiser, da 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 but he lacked charisma. And I said, hey, listen, 
if you want charisma, buy a ticket for the cinema. If you want laughs, there's a bloody good circus in Paris. You should not be... A, and what happened was, of course, they all went off from the weekend and uh, uh, they yep. took it for granted that Lionel was going to come at least second to Chirac. We went, yeah. And he didn't, he came third because of the division in the left and the fact that they stayed at home. And Le Pen came second. Mm. So the socialists all then had to go and vote for bloody Chirac, the gangster, <laughs> in order to stop Le Pen becoming mm. the president of France. I mean, that's what happens when people are serious about their tax returns, serious about their families, serious about their mortgage, and casual about their politics. You can't, you can't afford it. It's too expensive to take it easy. But equally, it's incumbent on the left, isn't it, as it was on Jaspin, as it was on Miliband this time, to make a convincing case beyond sure. the core vote, yeah. not just to those people oh, that I are agree. left wing, yeah. and, and to bring in people. And that was something yeah. that you were fundamental in forcing the Labour Party to understand. And to, it, to try to do, to understand <laughs> and to try to do. I'm not sure I succeeded on the, on the second score. Because it, it, what I find fascinating now about where we are is you dragged the Labour Party at great personal cost, uh, and, and a certain amount of personal energy, and, and but a, a real risk to, to your own reputation. And 1985, that speech at the Labour Party conference is still. I watched it. Uh, I've watched it so many times. But I was watching it again earlier, and the hairs still stand up on my arms when you speak. I think it is one of the greatest moments in the history of British politics when the Labour Party finally takes on the hard left and boots it out. So in that regard, you would say, well, Kinnock's on the right of the party, <laughs> but now. Post Blair, would you say you were on the left of the party? I've always been on the left. Um, and sometimes the Labour Party has, generally speaking, agreed with the point of view I take. Sometimes I find myself in a uh, slightly smaller majority. But it's, <laughs> um, no, but I, you know, I've got some basic beliefs that are not, uh, they're not strong ideology, they are pretty commonsensical matter of fact and I derive them from my background, my broader humanitarian beliefs, lots of things like that. But um, my father said to me a long time ago, I suppose it's a good way of defining it, when I first got elected onto the student council in university, I went home at the Easter time and of course I was chuffed at getting on, top the pole. And uh, <laughs> they didn't know me then. And, uh, went home and uh, I phoned my mum with the results. And uh, he said, uh, You're taking this politics seriously then? <laughs> and I said, Well, yeah, it's the only way to get anything done. He said, Oh, agree with that. Agree with that. I'd been a member of the Labour Party since I was 14. Uh, and we'd had a lot of political conversations, which happened all the time in our house. Not Duke's usual stuff. But, you know. It was part of the warp and weft. It was, and next day you'd be talking about a book or talking about where, which opera they were going to. And my old man was a steel worker and ex-collier and my mother was a nurse. And that was not unusual in the kind of working class household I was in. There were hundreds of thousands of people in the same situation. Anyway, he said to me, uh, you won't grow a beard, will you? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, no. Oh. <laughs> Why not? He said, because politicians should have to shave every day. 
Anna said, uh, so they look in the mirror. He said, that's right. I said, duh. What about women? <laughs> and he said, lipstick. I mean, it just sort of, I have found a better analysis in all the years. You know? I had smack on. And so uh, you've got to have a compass. Uh, otherwise, there's a real danger of sailing before the winds, and that means you sink. I agree, but isn't there a danger if you... I'm trying to sort of stretch the analysis of a compass, but if... Don't bother. <laughs> I, Jim Callahan is the warning against all maritime analogies in politics. If, if, the, if there's a polar shift or something like that, what I'm saying is, shouldn't you move with the times? Well, you've got to. Well, it's your primary duty. I mean, I... But don't some people in the Labour Party misunderstand principle for... Um, ah, no, that's when it's becoming... You know, I know exactly the point you're getting at. Politics, and this applies not solely to the Labour Party, but it certainly applies. People can easily mistake, for reasons I will understand, their political commitment for religious conviction. Mm. And it's not the same... Because, oh, sure, religion has got to move with the times and we see what happens horribly when it doesn't. But in politics, uh, democratic politics, you've got a primary obligation to recognise and accommodate and try to inspire and lead the times. I mean, it's, it's a different obligation, I guess, from religion. I'm not religious, so I, I, I don't presume to get inside their jacket. But... Uh, in politics, unless you are serving the present and building for the future, you, you should take up fly fishing because it's less damage, you know, and, uh, and certainly a lot of less, less sweat. You, you get cold more often, I guess, but nevertheless. <laughs> but it's, it's uh, the primary obligation of somebody in democratic politics, and I say this is sharper, more marked, more insistent for democratic socialists like I am than it may be for other people in politics, you must address the real condition and needs and aspirations of the times, but you must do it in a way that doesn't mean you're only managing today or looking for tomorrow's headlines. You've got to have a much longer perspective so that it's going to get better because of what you are trying to do. Now, you don't do it by yourself. You require every entrepreneur, every trade unionist, every nurse, every doctor, every road sweeper to be part of it. But your business, as a democratic politician, a representative who's taken it upon themselves to ask people for their votes, you've got an obligation to th them to say what he's trying to do, to explain what he's trying to do, and ask them to come with you doing it. And with some people you succeed, and some people, as I, I got the T-shirt, you don't succeed. <laughs> but it, but it's, that's what you're there for. Anybody who's in politics for other reasons, and there are some. Uh, I mean, hell, if they want to make money, there's, they should go and do something else, because they're never going to make money by being properly engaged in democratic politics. And if they want popularity, they'd be better learning a song, or even better writing a song, or even better 
appearing in a soap opera because that's not what you're there for. You're there to try to discover and articulate the realities in a way that can give people confidence in themselves in the future and to help with them to build a future worth having. Otherwise, forget it. And Labour's journey under you really is, is encapsulated, isn't it, in that moment in 1985. Do you remember that conference? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Vividly, because I watch it and just think your adrenaline must have been surging at that point. When every, well, not everyone's taking you, but Eric Heffer and Derek Hatton are, uh, are shouting abuse. Or did you, in a bizarre way, sort of relish it? Um, the day that I relished was the next day, actually, <laughs> when I told him and stood up and told Arthur Scargill in front of the Labour Party conference what I thought of him and used the words from fellas in the lodge in my constituency because that's what they thought. Uh, and that's, the, that's, the one the exact I, that's the one I really... I can honestly say, uh, together with the results of uh, the European Parliament elections in 1989, when we had a rampaging success, that was the other moment I really enjoyed. I, a couple of times I enjoyed in the Commons when I made good jokes at Maggie's expense. But... <laughs> but, um, but I really enjoyed that. The day before, the reason... I mean, I, yeah, I, I felt a sense of satisfaction. And that was enhanced by uh, Hatton screaming. I couldn't have dreamed <laughs> and no director would have ever, unless it was a really inspired director, John Ford or somebody, <laughs> saying, uh, you, you, you're the big dark-haired guy. You stand there and you scream at him, right? Okay. <laughs> I, and we'll get all that on film. I, I couldn't have dreamed that he would be such an idiot. But he, he just... <laughs> and then Eric, uh, getting upset Heffer. and walking off. And um, I actually thought he was going to try and clock me. Uh, I, I've watched that. Uh, I've watched that film. Maybe, I don't know, three times or something. I, uh, Only three times since? Yeah. Why would he do it? I've watched it about 300. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well listen, I get A-level students who've watched it more than I have. And uh, that's when you know you're really bloody old. <laughs> I, was, I was talking to somebody earlier, and I thought his son was doing A-level politics. He's not. He's studying me in A-level history. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> With the Romans and the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Um, and, and they're encyclopedic about it, and it's very impressive. So in a sense, I have not to watch it because these kids have been telling me for 20 years, and, and they're wonderful, they're wonderful youngsters, they're terrific. But um, I, if you watch it, as I recall it, uh, and of course it got played and played and played because he was in that terrific Hugh Hudson party political, uh, as well as broadcast on the news and so on. And it'll, when I die, you can be absolutely <laughs> certain they're going to play that as well as me falling down on the bloody beach. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway um, I could, I could, out of the corner of my peripheral vision, I'm told it is, I, I could see Eric getting up and I thought, oh, God damn, he's going to clock me. So I'm belting at the audience, Hatton screaming and shouting. And I just shifted my weight on my foot. And you can actually see it on the film. I mean, I, I can see it because I knew it happened. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm there with my hands on the rostrum. And I drop my hands and I shift onto my left foot. Because yeah. he's coming from the left. Because I thought, if he bumps me, this is going through my head. If he bumps me, do I bump him? Or do I just brush it off like a gentleman? <laughs> and before I could decide, ha, he'd gone. I, looking for Doris, God bless her. Healy had sparked him out. And, and it, and, well, it would, it, would have been, it would have been quite interesting if he had, say, really clouded me across the air, because I think, well, I hate to think what would have happened. I, I, <laughs> let the rest be dots. Oh. Right. But it, it's... Uh, but I there just, was at least I a 50-50 you could have laid no, it on. No, I don't, I don't, I don't very much. He was much older than me. <laughs> but there was a period, wasn't there, and a lot of people don't appreciate this in the Labour Party's history, during your leadership perhaps, where the Labour Party was still tumultuous, not just in an ideological sense, <laughs> but in, in part, I mean, even in my lifetime, in the noughties, <laughs> I went to party meetings where people threw chairs at each other, were spat at. Like, I thought I'd stopped all that. <laughs> oh, you really disappointed uh, me. I thought I'd chuck them fuckers out. <laughs> wow. But it... it uh, meetings during your era must have been like proper punch-ups and things like that. Ah, uh, handbags, Molly. <laughs> if you've ever been in a real punch-up, you know the difference between a real punch-up and handbags. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, there were periods, instances, uh, which people who were in the mainstream, people on the left in the party, the democratic left, withstood awful attacks, pressures, spitting, pushing, and all the rest of it. And uh, particularly in, uh, in, but not solely, in Liverpool. Uh, the meetings of the Trades and Labour Council in Liverpool um, could be outrageous because you'd get bona fide trade union representatives turning up, uh, young women from the NUT or the GNM or wherever. And I know one of them, who later became a member of parliament, and a very good member of parliament, uh, used to wear an old coat of her mother's because she knew she was going to get spat on. And when I made that speech, the great thing about that speech wasn't the speech itself. I'd been waiting to make that for a year. I would have made it in 84, but for the fact that we had the miners' strike, and I knew nobody would have heard it. 
If I was lucky, if they had heard it, then there would have been revolt in a very, very emotional party for a reason that I understand. Okay, so I've been waiting a year to get stuck into these people. Uh, with a disgrace to democratic socialism. I mean, they just were. So, um, all this had been going on. This the appalling behavior and uh, attempted bullying, um, you know, threats, menaces, all kinds of things. I'm not even simply solely blaming militant for it. There were other bits and pieces who were into the same business. Absolutely outrageous. And you knew they wouldn't do it if the people that they were seeking to do it were guys who could look after themselves or women who could look after themselves or organized. And the moment that that came in October 1985, two things that were really revealing and for me uplifting. One, the people who'd been going to the meetings and putting up with that crap stopped it. They said, no, 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 we're the real Labour Party, you get out. And either you play by the rules or go through the door. And they took courage from it. And it was the courage of their own convictions. Nobody sort of injected them with kinegitis or anything. They just had always felt like that, but felt, oh, can I really? And they did. And the second thing was the knockdown drag out of months using the Constitution to exclude these people. A Constitution established for a generous, broad party that had the best opinion about everybody, and so there was half a line in a sentence, a short sentence, you may think I'm unfamiliar with those things, a short <laughs> sentence, in, in, the, in the Constitution that permitted me to go after the militant, and we went through hours and hours and days and days and days of hearings. It was worth it to catch 24 of them and exclude them, with a majority of one on the National Executive Committee. They were interesting, character-forming times. <laughs> but but you, what do you know in democratic politics is you're very unlucky if you get killed. You know. <laughs> Yes. It's not like Chile or El Salvador or the places, no. or South Africa or the places where people really take risks, really take risks. But within the context of British politics, particularly looking back now, it was a, it was a particularly um, turbulent era. And you mentioned the miners' strike there. I mean, how do you feel about Arthur Scargill now? I feel, how do I feel about him? I, in a sense, I feel a bit sorry for him. Because as I said to him once, Arthur, you were the first national union leader in history, as far as I know, to start a strike with a big union and a small house and end with the opposite. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, that was our last conversation. <laughs> but, um, uh, <laughs> Arthur was my age, or he's a year older than I am, I think. He's gone into complete retreat. You won't uh, talk to any interviewers or respond to even the most sympathetic writers. Mm. And uh, I, I don't think his family talked to him. You know, he's, uh, he's stuck there. He's, uh, he's my age or thereabouts. And I, you know, at 73, if I didn't have my family and my friends and active politics and doing a bit here and there and staying out of trouble, uh, 
God. Well, I think I'd probably expire. But uh, so there's Arthur. I, you know, I, it would be utterly hypocritical of me to say I feel sorry for him. But if he lived next door, I'd give him a cup of tea. You know. <laughs> oh, there. It feels wrong to probably phone. Oh, thank that. God he doesn't live next door. <laughs> 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 but at, at the time, though, is it fair to say that you hated each other? Oh yes, cordially. Um, I, I, it predates the strike, but I thought that we'd reached uh, some kind of détente, if I could put it like that, because a couple of weeks after I was elected leader in 1983, I asked Arthur to came, come in because there was a looming serious dispute in the coal mining industry, and uh, I was acutely aware of that because of the boys in my constituency. Um, including some of my closest mates who were working in the coal industry in the, in the pits in my constituency. So anyway, he came in and uh, it was obvious that the big work to rule was going to take place. And I knew my constituents would be solid. They'd be the first to implement it and they'd do it properly in order to try and defend themselves against what, as history has demonstrated and Camelot Minutes being published and everything has absolutely proved, was an outrageous scale and pace, very important point, of pit closures. And my argument was all the time was for coal as an essential strategic resource for our country. But secondly, that the reduction of the coal mining industry, inevitable because it's an extractive industry, apart from concerns about the environment, so on, even if coal was all clean burn, there'd still be a reality of an extractive industry running down. People are starting to awake to the fact that the same thing is happening to oil, and it will happen to gas, so we'd better plan for it. And that was my argument, that we could secure the transition that had been achieved in Germany and from the rust industries to modern technology in Sweden by planning it over a period of years with a proper investment so you sustained communities, maintained employment, and didn't get any of the economic and social consequences of radical, almost instantaneous mm. collapse. So I was very happy to make the case for coal. Um, no question about that at all. And the conversation we had was two hours long. Uh, my ideas were that uh, people from the pits should go into the highways and byways, the marketplaces of non-industrial Britain and very lucidly and calmly explain their concerns for the country and their communities to the people. And I was certain they'd get receptive hearing. And Arthur, well, I wouldn't say he, well, yeah, he did agree with that. He thought it was a good way to go about things. And to do it, against the backdrop of the work to rule uh, would manifestly dramatize it because the boys could say how much money they were losing every week, mm. but it was worth doing that to defend their communities and try to get uh, a better planned future. And that was uh, around about the 30th of October, some, uh, might have been first week in November. And that's, we're, that's the only sort of really sort of calm, considered conversation I've ever had with Arthur. 
And then the relationship just completely what? broke down. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Um, be because, uh, in my view... Was it just about ballot in his just. It wasn't just not having a ballot. It was the way in which not having a ballot was contrived. The strike had sporadically started. And, of course, the fellows in my constituency, the first out, and they went up to Nottinghamshire and they sat in the canteens and they talked to the boys and the boys were coming out. Knowing that, the moment you picketed the pit, they were going to work. There's no question about that. People won't be pushed around. Yeah, yeah. And the same thing would have happened in reverse. Um, if the Notts miners had come down and talked to the South Wales miners, South Wales miners would have said, blood of our blood, we're sharing, we're supporting. If they picketed the pits in South Wales, they just said, get out the bloody way. And it was the same thing in reverse. Now, I'm not saying it would have been easy sailing. I'm not saying that getting a majority would have been simple or anything like that. But Scargill went to a special conference in the first week in April 1984 um, with a proposal to change the constitution of the National Indian Mine Workers from a 55% requirement for a national strike 55% majority to a 50% majority for a national strike, uh, which was the right thing to do. I mean, the 55% mm. condition was unsupportable. 50% uh, fine, and people thought, although I entertained a little reservation, but I was hoping that that meant that at the same conference, they were then going to say, and our constitution now obeying that, we're going to have a national ballot. Because I knew that even if there were a coal field or two, maybe Notts, maybe Lancashire, I don't know, um, who would not vote to go out and strike, they nevertheless would, in solidarity, in the main, have come out and strike. Now, the strike wouldn't have lasted a year. It wouldn't have lasted six months. It would have been much shorter than that. But the impact would have been a united labor force in the pit, campaigning for the right thing, uh, there would have been a lot more sympathetic action from other workers, especially those in the docks and transport industries, without smashing up the national block labour scheme, which they did. Um, and the public would have been much more comprehending because of a democratic mandate. And they could have secured an outcome which would have been different in terms of the gradual agreed rundown uh, of pits that were not sustainable. Um, but Arthur wasn't interested in that. He had this political fixation with uh, a kind of insurgency. And he got the most loyal and decent, strongest labor force in the country, maybe in the whole continent, to accept his propaganda that Stocks were running out, which was always rubbish. He started the bloody strike as the summer was coming, which is exactly what Hitler did when he invaded Russia. I'm not saying... That <laughs> I'm not saying... So that linger in the air? It, no, it, I, it's obviously not out of Hitler and nonsense like that. But <laughs> nevertheless, to have been willing to stimulate and lead a national mm. coal strike when the demand was going down. And we knew, and he knew, that whereas in February of 19, 
1883, the total coal stock, as it had been for years previously, was about 37 million on the ground, 37 million tons. In February 1984, it was 49.5 million tons. <coughs> Maggie and her ministers had prepared, they prepared the coal stocks, they prepared the police, they prepared everything. Mm. They prepared the benefit system, everything to crush the miners. They could not believe Scargill was willing to start the strike in middle March. So Thatcher was obviously the other titan that you faced in that era. Um, well, they deserved each other, Arthur and <laughs> <laughs> But nobody else did. <laughs> but do you, are there any redeeming features that you could say of, of Maggie? Uh, she, she really was genuinely concerned and kind about her staff. Um, and, uh, I mean, Maggie really thought she was doing what she did for the strongest patriotic reasons, heavily tinged with ideology, but nevertheless, uh, I mean, in one sense, the best and worst thing about Margaret Thatcher was she was sincere. Uh, I mean, it's the best thing because you appreciate sincerity in everybody. It was the worst thing because it's sincerity, and this is what brought it down in the end, turned into what the Greeks called hubris. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a excessive confidence in her own judgment and rectitude, and that's what eventually brought it down, as should always happen in a democracy. Did you ever have, in those periods, lighter moments in private with each other? Or? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it, and it wasn't because we had a sort of... Uh, a personal lack of chemistry, let me be admit. It was also because, I tell you, it's a really funny thing. I had to think about this a couple of weeks ago because I was talking to, to a bloke who was writing a very serious and scholarly biography of Margaret Thatcher. And I found myself reflecting, as I had on a couple of previous occasions, but never with any great cogency because, hell, life's too short to spend time on these things, that... Um, Part of her assertiveness, her stridency, uh, the fact that, for instance, all the really, really, really tough people I've ever met, whether they've been uh, soldier heroes or women with six kids that you never hear complaining and have been through oh, awful bloody experiences, they never call themselves tough, even though they are tough as hell. Mm. Whereas Maggie was always uh, inferring this terrific toughness. And I reflect and think, poor, there must have been a real lack of self-confidence under that because you are never as assertive, as strident, as hectoring in your conduct. Not, not with, with me, it didn't matter about that, but with her colleagues and uh, cabinet papers show it and the uh, obsessive attention to particular details, not letting people get on with the job, intervention, interfering, uh, late night calls, pushing and all the rest of it, which in some ways, when it's somebody leading a small team responsible for reaching a particular objective, 
uh, you know, they can be footballers, cricketers, soldiers, um, coal miners, whatever, I might be necessary. I found myself doing much the same thing in rather lesser significant circumstances. But to do that as Prime Minister and not rely on the authority of the office with a significant majority and a couple of election successes behind you, but to keep on doing it, uh, says something that makes me think, oh, wait a minute, um, it's a good job she had Dennis. <laughs> because, I mean, he would, in a peculiar way, he was Mr. Normal. <laughs> and um, she needed an anchor like that, even though she once said, of a similar character, actually, Willie Whitelaw was a decent guy. I mean, he was a Tory and we never were friends or anything like that, but uh, this guy lived in the real world. He led his soldiers into battle, he'd done the business, and he had an appreciation of people that you don't get unless you live, work, or fight with mm. them. And uh, Willie was Mr. Sanity. And Maggie said, what, said once, in appreciation of Willie, Everyone needs a willy. <laughs> and everybody else in the room just fell about laughing. She, did. she didn't think she'd crack the joke. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Um, I've got open up the floor to um, questions, but um, just before we do that, I forgot to ask about the Labour leadership campaign and who you think the best leader would make of the current crop. Well, um... I was going to say I've got a great record here, but I voted for John Smith, I voted for Tony Blair, I strongly supported Gordon Brown, and I was the first out of the traps to support Ed Miliband, and I think I was right. But in order not to put the jinx on anybody, I'm not going to say... Can you whisper it? No. <laughs> because in politics, every whisper is a shout. <laughs> Do you... But, do you know who you're going to vote for? Oh, yeah. I've known right from the start. And have you told Andy Burnham that you're supporting him yet? <laughs> Wild horses! <laughs> OK, let's open up the uh, floor to questions. You can't go first, William. Bloody hell. Um, I'm, not sure we got, I'm not sure we've got a rover mic. If not, have we? No, I don't think we have. So um, we, we'll have to do this thing for the podcast where I'll have to repeat the question, which will become slightly um, irritating, but I apologise. If I could ask for one-sentence questions, and Neil, if it's OK, one-sentence answers. Oh, yes. OK. Um, Just no, some sentences last for 25, 30 years. Depends on the effect. <laughs> That's I'm, sort of an average-length short I'm sentence. I'm doing this out of deference to my advanced years. It's better if I write down what people say and then... OK, Okay. I'll, I'll tell you what, what, should we take them in threes? And then oh, we can God, work oh, no. in an old man's life. Okay, okay. We'll, just do them, we'll do them in ones. Yes, whatever you like, whatever you know. Yes, what's your name and what's your question, please? Aidan. Aidan? Um, at this stage after an electoral loss, how does a party tell if it was a communication issue or something much deeper? How does a party tell this soon after an electoral loss whether it's a communication problem or something much deeper? Right. Or oh, do you want to do three? Should we do three? Yeah. Never done that before, but it makes it feel like a real political event. Um, <laughs> yes, the lady at the back. Um, Sandy Toxwick, if you're not a new queen... Sorry, your name is Sandy Toxwick? No, no, no. No, sorry. <laughs> sorry, love. I know it isn't. Hello, Jennifer. Jennifer. Yeah. OK. Yeah, I know that. If you're not a new queen, 
yeah. help form a, a, a equality party, and it's going to be mainly women. Um, do you think that's a good idea? Sunday Talks figures leaving the news quiz to form an equality party. It's going to be mainly women. Do you think that's a good idea? That could be just a one-word answer. And. <laughs> Or maybe, maybe, maybe two <laughs> involving transport. <laughs> William. In order, to, in order to address disillusioned people in the British electorate, surely the next Labour leader has got to move away from, they've got to have a broad vision, but they've also got to move away from meetings like they had in the last election where they are bussing in acolytes. To, to cheer them in small select groups and they're never meeting any ordinary yeah, people at all. So political party, the question about political parties having to meet ordinary people instead of just, um, yeah, busting acolytes. Right, in answer to Aidan, uh, any sensible political party in the wake of defeat or even victory should ask itself the serious questions about communication and the deeper things, about uh, the quality and cogency and realism of its message as well about the way in which it was transmitted. Um, underneath that is not just an issue of cogency but honesty because in the end you can be as cogent as you like. If you're selling a false message you will be found out. And so, uh, you know, duplicity that's Cogent is no damn good at all. I mean, point that I'm making is you've got to go deep, but have the maturity, the common sense, and the loyalty to what the party stands for to do it in a way that is civilized, doesn't give hostages to your enemies, and doesn't unnecessarily provoke uh, the dismissal and uh, uh, the mockery of the commentating media, or even if it does get a bad review from them, have this party's got enough strength <coughs> and self-confidence to push them aside and get on with the job of investigating very candidly, fairly rapidly, and then coming to honest conclusions about its errors, inadequacies, and how we can re repair those things. If they're not doing that, then they are so arrogant that they really shouldn't be in a political party. Now, I speak from some experience, because we went through that. Uh, we certainly went through that in 1979. We went through that in 1983. People started to smell coffee in 1987. And they really got the message after being beaten for the fourth time in succession in 1992 um, and we fortunately had means of ensuring because of the changes that have been made in the Labour Party of uh, that people could focus, argue and conduct themselves in a way that produced what turned out to be victorious results. Um, I'm afraid Neil has used all the sentences. Uh, <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, uh, this was this is a modest offence, so I only served a partial sentence. Uh, Sandy Toxwick, wonderful woman, great woman, Dane. I like women who come from Denmark. Uh, 
<laughs> She's missing the point. Um, equality isn't an abstract. It's not a singular objective. It needs so many components, including for gender equality. And she'd be better off uh, spending a couple of quid joining the Labour Party and organizing and advocating like hell uh, for the cause of promoting uh, equality or as a precondition of that, dismantling the appalling and growing bone marrow inequality that is disabling uh, not just our society but our economy at the present time. Inequality is not only uh, unjust, dreadfully and disfiguringly so, inequality is appallingly inefficient mm. because it is expensive, it's wasteful and it is retarding for an economy and a society. So if Sally wants to campaign for combating inequality and providing the alternatives that will promote greater equality, she ought to join the Labour Party, not set up a separate party. Um, William, uh, I mean, I sympathise with you entirely about the meetings packed with party members and supporters that look synthetic. Um, this started in the 1979 general election. I mean, I've been fighting in general elections since 1959 and enjoyed the rough and tumble. But in 1979, Pat Arrowsmith, um, who was a distinguished anarchist, mm -hmm. if that isn't a confusion in terms, <laughs> started invading Jim Callahan's general election meetings, um, at which I was the warm-up speaker in a few, <coughs> being a dumb youngster, um, who was prepared to take it all on. And uh, they'd be very full meetings. There'd be several hundred, sometimes a couple of thousand people there. And Arrowsmith and uh, people, 20, 30 of them, would come in, incessant barracking, throwing things and all the rest of it. And the cops would have to catch hold of them, take them out. The meeting, its spirit had been lost. Because whilst you can deal with hecklers, and you shouldn't be on your feet on a platform if you can't, barracking, shouting, screaming, bawling, using klaxons, <laughs> blowing whistles, that's no good. That just absolutely overthrows democracy. Out of that, of course, also came concern about the provisionals and the fact that every major political leader was an easy and automatic target. So the security people got the reason, some would say the excuse, to really clamp down on things. And eventually we got the conferences behind barbed wire and we get to election meetings where only the faithful are invited. The press that complains about the Madame Tussauds nature of uh, election political meetings doesn't point out that that's where it all came from. And if people understood that, they'd say, okay, I, I don't agree with it. I still think there should be many more opportunities, maybe arranged by the television or radio companies, to get a balanced audience of people of the street in so that they're not all uh, political rigged. Uh, and if the press explained that's where it came from, I think a lot more people would say, okay, okay, let's have 
people's meetings, village meetings, town meetings as they call them in the USA, um, that really do have people who haven't got any political affiliation or have got a political orientation but are not formally a member of a party, mix it in and make it free and fair. Now I think most of the politicians would like that as well and I think we should do it. But that isn't what makes people disillusioned. What makes people disillusioned is when politicians uh, bend the rules, use the rules to fill their own boots, or when um, people are reluctant to give absolutely straight answers because if they did, they know they'd be bloody crucified. You were talking earlier, Matt, about why haven't we got the great figures, the uh, the colourful figures, the Hesseltines, the Michael Foots and all the rest of it. The reason is that if you're a leader of a political party and you do things like they did and say things like they said, they hammer you. And so that leads to a more temperate approach, much more scholastic, less likely to cause or inflame opinions. And that's why politics has become so much more pallid and because of that, maybe less democratic and definitely less inspiring. Now, I hope we can kick out of that, but it's up to you, pal. It's not just up to the politicians, it's up to you. I agree. Um, okay, the next three questions are from Labour head office. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, have you got the rest of the night? Right, um, not if you give answers that long. Uh, we need. Okay. <laughs> Right, we, uh, there needs to be quick answers, Neil. Please, quick right. answers, because we need to... Ask so, me less good questions, then. OK, right. Yes. So we'll take... Th these will be the last three questions. So, uh, the gentleman there. Yes. What advice would you give to a young Northern lad who wants to emulate the success that you brought to the, in the Labour Party? What advice would you give to a young Northern lad who wants to emulate the success that you brought to the Labour Party? Is there anyone on the balcony that's got a question? Yes. Yeah. Yes? Do What's you your name? Uh, Gordon. Gordon. That's my second name. Yeah. <laughs> Do you uh, agree that current attitudes to Tony Blair in the Labour Party are incredibly unfair and hard? <laughs> That's coming from a Scotsman called Gordon, which is very rare. Uh, that was from Gordon the Scot. It says, do you agree that the attitudes towards Tony Blair in the Labour Party oh. are poisoning what political debate? What, a, what a bigoted man. <laughs> <laughs> OK, and the last question. The lady at the back. What would you say to those people who say that Labour lost the election because Labour wasn't left-wing enough? OK, well, so we go. Really quick fire answers. OK, uh, I'll start with the last one from Jane, yes? Um, we lost in Scotland because the SNP appeared to be more radical, quote-unquote, left-wing than we were. And people say we lost in England uh, because we were too left-wing. I think the reason on both sides of the borders is for a variety of reasons that I haven't been able to go into tonight, which is why you're invited next Wednesday night, <laughs> is that we weren't convincing enough in the times and context in which we should have been fighting the election for the last five and a, well, certainly four and a half, five years. And that's true on both sides of the border. I can go into a lot more detail, but I won't have the deference to you, Matt, and the patience, <laughs> and the patience of, the, uh, 
of the audience. <laughs> it wasn't left or right, love. It was whether we looked as if we could do the job. And even though I had terrific confidence in Ed and some of his people, uh, the, the public didn't. I'm sorry about that. Um, I go. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh, see, the problem if, is now, that's the one... No, if they are dismissive of the whole, third, or the whole ten years of Tony Blair, that would be very unfair and harsh, because if you look at the social and economic changes of huge substance that were made, then uh, <laughs> Tony Blair was a massively successful Labour Prime Minister, in my view, and underpinning that was, was Gordon Brown as Treasurer, uh, as uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, who made commitments to record levels, doubled levels of investment in health, education, combating family po policy. Uh, we got the minimum wage, got lots of other things, sure start, lots of other things. Nobody can take that away. And then, you're out of time. Uh, <laughs> and then, Tony, Tony inhaled. Uh, he started. Holy shit! You've got as much time as you like. He, he started to believe uh, the propagandising and uh, fawning comments made about him. He started mixing with George Bush, which mm. can have an effect on anybody. Like <laughs> and. Um, uh, I think his judgment became less cute than it had been. And so consequently, uh, unfortunately, what people look at is that part of the history of Tony Blair, rather than the, the five or six or even seven years before. And that's where they become unbalanced and unfair. But maybe it's because with those years, of distortion, of committing us in Iraq and all the other things, uh, and of adherence to the American cause without justification, um, Tony invited that kind of critique. Uh, but I would advise people to take a balanced view, and that means then, if they want to hammer the history of Tony Blair, they can but from a solid position, instead of being dismissive either from the right or the left, of everything that occurred under his leadership. Um, I can't tell you what to do, young northern lad. <laughs> I can tell you what not to do, and that is never, please, for God's sake, no matter how interested or, in, or active or engaged you are in politics, never think of it as a career. Because, I, and I say that because over the last 40 years, I've bumped into lots of really able young people of both sexes who've opened the conversation or at some stage in the encounter said, what do I do to make politics my career? And I've always had to say, for God's sake, whatever else you do, don't do that. Uh, finish your education, uh, get a job that is useful to people and that you enjoy. And then if you are very, very, very lucky, someday people in the ward, in the constituency, will choose you to have the bloody cheek to ask other people to come and vote for you. And, and that's the only rational and sensible and democratic way to do it. Because if you, and this is 
always been my opinion, even when I was a young South Walian lad myself. Um, you, I mean, you, you mustn't think of it as a greasy pole. You mustn't try to climb up it. Uh, you've got to try and do it the hard way. I mean, I was hellishly lucky, and it was luck. I got selected for one of the safest <coughs> constituencies in the country at 28 years of age. And uh, even though people were very flattering about my performances and all the rest of it, I knew genius had about 5% to do with it. And sweat had about 10% to do with it. The rest of it was sheer blind bloody luck of being in the right place at the right time. Now maybe you get that kind of luck, in which case you'll end up, God help you, <laughs> in 50 years time, roughly where I am, reflecting on yet another bloody Labour defeat. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you avoid that. <laughs> so just to, just to tie everything together, just so everyone's clear, because there's so many things. Tony Blair was the best Prime Minister we had, though, right? <laughs> he, was, he was bloody terrific. I mean, the point is, is Tony is the first to acknowledge. In 1997, if John Smith, God rest his soul, had lived, he'd have won. Uh, he would have won with a very large majority. If Gordon had been our candidate, and there was a real possibility of that, in the days after John died in 94, he would have won. Uh, Tony won with a certain uh, panache, as we say in South Wales. <laughs> uh, a certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> uh, and that made it not just more successful, but more glamorous, with gigantic potential. And um, I mean, I kept saying to him, Tony, we can run the next century, you know, in the same way the Tories have run this bloody century. And I suggested one or two acts of possible skullduggery and influence that could have been, it would have involved a couple of Tory knighthoods and one or two other things. But um, Palace is worth a mass. It's much better than putting people in the House of Lords because they sign a cheque. But anyway, but um, uh, uh, it was, you know, much too above all that kind of thing to do it, which I regret. But uh, it was a huge opportunity with a gigantic mandate. And it, I kept on preaching, look, people have voted for us because they stopped liking the Tories. Great. Governments lose elections, not oppositions win. But this time, pal, quite a lot of people voted Labour because that's what they wanted. Yeah. So it's a mixture. <laughs> and. Um, he didn't necessarily act on that mandate, and maybe it's because he's too decent and not sufficiently political partisan, which is a good thing I'm told. Um, uh, I'd have loved a majority of 170. <laughs> because a thousand flowers would have bloomed. And our people at the end of it would have been more healthy, stronger, more free, more free, more creative than ever. Anyway, that's to come. <laughs> that's to come. Yes, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, Thank you very much for coming down again. Uh, you've been a truly wonderful crowd. Um, I, we've got an amazing guest next month. 
provided that they d and just need to double double confirm it but it is a what I can only describe as a significant guest uh, so as they always are but I, I, I don't want to I gotta tell this right oh, you walk straight into it uh, before I gave up work and became a politician um, I was working for the Workers' Education Association and I was invited by the Swansea Labour Club to go down to the Swansea University in order to speak to a lunchtime meeting. So I was, I was teaching in Ford Motor Company uh, shop stewards, so it was perfect for me. I went along to the university, spoke to the Labour Club, which was absolutely packed out, and what I discovered later, it was one of the universities, Newcastle was the other one, that was used as a kind of uh, grooming ground by the Milton tendency. So it was a fairly rambustious lunchtime meeting, because I've always as any decent left-wing democratic socialist must be, being vehemently against the trots. Anyway, it was, it was, it was uproarious, uproarious. And at the end of it, a young uh, woman secretary came up and said, Oh, Mr. Kinnock, oh, that was one of the best meetings we've ever had. That was absolutely wonderful. What about your expenses? And I said, it's okay, love. I was coming to Swansea in any case, but I wouldn't dream of charging the Labour Club after such an enjoyable time, especially. And she said, oh, that's lovely, that's lovely. Because what we like to do is save as much money as we can so we can have some really good speakers. <laughs> it was no reflection on you, it was just... You know, I know, I know, don't dig. Take it to self. Don't dig. Um, but it is an exceptional guest. Um, <laughs> But as always, uh, please thank uh, Pav and all the staff here at the St. James Theatre we've made tonight. Possibly Light and Sound, everyone at Avalon. And until next month, please, a huge reception for Neil Kinnock. Thanks, Cheers, Cheers, mate. Neil Kinnock there, Lord Kinnock. Mm. I mean, he's a top bloke, uh, and, I, and I hope he's someone that I'll be a friend with for the rest of my life, but... His sort of belief that it was the press and the media that lost the election for Labour, I, 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 sort of, I have a certain amount of despair in, really, because I, I, there's just this idea that people are always a product of what they read and that people can't think critically for themselves. I, I can't fully accept. I understand that the media can help frame things, they can help create general impressions, but I tend to subscribe to the Jim Murphy School, which is the, the voters are never wrong, and that almost seemed to be something that... Uh, that Neil didn't agree with, which is, which is difficult. And obviously, you have to handle that tactfully because the man's a legend, but he's also fragile in a way because he, he didn't win an election. So he, <clears throat> he knows that he's always got that on his CV, if you like. So you have to handle that in a careful way. But what an amazing, amazing man and a man with a rare soul. Um, I'm talking to Jim Murphy. He's the next guest before we take a break for the summer for the Edinburgh Festival. So um, that'll be out as soon as possible. Obviously... He'll be the first repeat that we've had on the Political Party podcast, technically, because I interviewed him in Scotland last year. Um, but I'd never done him at one of the London shows, and I was very keen in the aftermath of the election to have, um, without putting too fine a point on it, one of the major casualties. And, of course, what Jim's gone through in Scotland in the last year, because the last time I interviewed him was before the referendum, excuse me, <coughs> like Natalie Bennett, um, was before the referendum. So... A lot has changed since then, including in his career. And I uh, just wanted to catch up with him. And I wanted to, I wanted to interview him in London at the proper night um, so that the audience there got to see him live. 
So we'll take a break after that. June, uh, July and August, sorry, I'll be in Edinburgh and then we'll be back uh, with shows in September, October, November and December. The guests are about to be announced soon. And as always, um, the very biggest names and the, the very uh, most interest, the very most, that's bad English, the most interesting characters in politics. I've approached a number of ones that have said that they want to do it. So it's just about tying these people down to dates and some of them are very exciting. Well, they're all very exciting, but some in particular, um, very exciting indeed. So as always, thank you so much for downloading it. And I, it's always really kind when people tweet me or say hello and tell me how much they love it. And it's a real, it's such a delight to know that uh, people really genuinely enjoy it. I think if nothing else, and th- this has nothing to do with me, I think what it shows definitely is long form political interviews are genuinely treasured by people and this constant interruption and making politicians behave in a defensive way doesn't really satisfy anyone. Um, and if you give people time and space, they show themselves and even if you disagree with these people in the end you come away at least with an impression of them as a human being and i think that's vital not just in politics but in life so thank you very much for um downloading it and for sharing it and thank you and i'll get jim murphy out as soon as possible sick of being upsold at gyms my guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.